0: Interrupting our series of sermons in the Gospel of Luke, we're now in the 15th chapter. We return to chapters 1 and 2 for our text this morning. Two short sections, a few verses in each case, one from chapter 1 and one from chapter 2. We begin reading Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And then over the page of chapter 2, the first seven verses there. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Our Father in heaven, these are passages of the word of God that are read again and again every year. At least we hear them read once or twice, if not more often. And then they are sung throughout the Christmas season in one carol after another. We can fail to feel the full impact of them because of their familiarity in this season of the year. But Lord, clear away everything that would prevent us from hearing this truth as it has been reported so simply, so straightforwardly. In the Gospel of Luke, help us, O God, as well to grasp the implications of this truth, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. I've chosen for my text this morning two short but representative sections of the Christmas history from the Gospel of Luke. I chose these two readings because they accent the historical nature of the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. By historical, I mean what everybody ordinarily means by the term, having to do with events that occurred in the past. I use the word to distinguish it from every form of the view that the account of the birth of Jesus Christ, as it is given in Matthew and Luke, is legendary or mythological, is an elaborate and inventive embellishment of a small historical core, That is, a little bit of the story may be historical, but all the supernatural aspects are contrived. Or the narrative is a theological interpretation of the Lord's life after the fact, rather than an account of what actually occurred. Theology in narrative form, rather than an account of what someone might have been able to capture had he been on the hillside near Bethlehem with a camera when the angels appeared The shepherds. The writers of the Gospels lead with their chin. Luke especially takes the risk of historical criticism, but he has stood that test admirably. Again and again, his historical details have been proved accurate. The gospel writers make no bones about what they are claiming. They offer the reader any number of avenues by which to discredit their account if, in fact, it can be discredited. They expect to be taken seriously as writers of history, as chroniclers of events. This is not once upon a time. Quite the contrary, it all began, Luke tells us, when Herod was the king of Judea with a Jewish priest named Zechariah who happened to belong to the division of Abijah, who with his wife Elizabeth was childless. Jesus himself was born when Augustus was the emperor, when Quirinius was the governor, and during a time when imperial taxation policy contrived to require a young couple from Galilee to make the trip to the Judean village of Bethlehem to be registered. And the narrative continues throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts in the same vein. For example, Herod's effort to kill the infant Jesus is precisely what we would expect of the man in the last months of his life from what we know about him from other sources. A cruel man all his life made much more cruel by the paranoia that descended upon him in its latter stages. My goodness, he had already executed one of his own sons for fear of a coup. It was Augustus himself who said of Herod, he would rather be Herod's pig than his boy. And there is more. Roman political figures are named. Think of Jesus' trial before and crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator or governor of Palestine, but also other such Roman governors as Sergius Paulus, Gallio, Felix, and Festus, concerning whom we have a great deal of information from other sources. We also are treated to information concerning members of the Jewish priestly and rabbinic aristocracy, known to us as well from other sources. Events are dated. Think of John the Baptist's public ministry beginning, as we were told, by Luke in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, so probably in the autumn of A.D. 27. Public events are described. Think of the death of Herod Agrippa I, reported in Acts chapter 12. The details of first century life are described sometimes in minute detail. The entire course of the Lord's life, from birth to crucifixion to resurrection to ascension, is firmly fixed within the chronicle of the history of Roman Palestine in the first century. The Gospel's descriptions of Jewish life of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, of the relation between the Jews and the Romans and so much more has been comprehensively confirmed, and that by independent sources, Greek, Roman, Jewish. So much of the Gospel's chronicle is subtly confirmed in the histories of the Jewish and Roman historian Josephus. No one can dispute the fact that the writers of the Gospels intend their readers to read their writings as accounts of what actually happened. Jesus in the Gospels is a figure of history in the same sense that Herod, Augustus, and Pilate are figures of history. However much more, or however much he is also a figure who transcends all of these other figures of history. To be sure... We don't have a wealth of corroborative evidence of the details of the Lord's life from other sources, though the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament is a very large and impressive source of historical confirmation. But we have some corroborative uh, evidence, some striking corroboration as a matter of fact, though only some But that's hardly unusual, even for historical persons and events of immense importance in the ancient world, because we only have a certain amount of history that has survived from those ancient days. We would know little to nothing, literally nothing, of the nearly ten years of fighting that brought modern France and Belgium Into the Roman Empire, were it not for Julius Caesar's own narrative of his so called Gallic Wars. And such a thing could be said about a great many ancient events and ancient figures, about whose life, about which events, no one entertains any doubts whatsoever. The question of historicity needs to be kept front and center in our day for a variety of reasons. You might think, that chiefly among them is the need to assert the history of the New Testament as factual in order to mount a defense of that history against the attacks upon it brought by the skeptical, uh, the skeptical community of uh, academics and so on in our culture. We need to help people see that the history of the life of Jesus Christ as reported in the Gospels is not only plausible, but by the canons of historical scholarship and criticism, more plausible than the narrative of a great many other historical events concerning which no one has any question whatsoever. That's true. But it's not what I'm about this morning. You can read a book like F.F. Bruce's The New Testament documents, are they reliable for an able treatment of such arguments as can be advanced for the reliability of the record of the Lord's life as we have given it in the New Testament? Or a much less popular and much more scholarly, read boring, um, presentation of that same argument in a book like Richard Baucom's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. C.S. Lewis, in his day, probably knew more of the world's literature of mythology than any other human being. And he knew the classical literature almost as well as anyone else. And it was his judgment that whatever the gospel narrative was, it wasn't mythology, it wasn't the legendary embellishment of a historical core, and it wasn't a theological interpretation after the fact of a few pieces of ordinary history concerning a person who was not born to a virgin mother, who was not announced by angels, and so on. You're reading a narrative, a historical narrative, an account of events, Lewis said. You read Bruce, who was an able classical scholar before he turned his attention to the New Testament, Baucom or Lewis, or many others, and you realize that a powerful case can be mounted for confidence in the gospel narrative as an account of real history. It's astonishing when you think about it, astonishing really, that narratives that make so many historical assertions, after these 2,000 years, not one of those assertions has actually been falsified or demonstrated to be untrue. But you also realize very quickly when you read this literature that learning and intellect have never been the issues in deciding questions of New Testament historicity. Very able and learned scholars believe the gospel narratives to be real history. Other learned men do not. But my interest this morning is more in dealing with another reason to assert the historicity of the narrative of our Savior's birth. For the... Historicity of the New Testament narrative is not just an issue of apologetics. Did these things actually happen? Can we rely on the record of them we have in the New Testament? They are also an issue, or it is also an issue, of theology and of faith. To say that Jesus was, a, was, a young, uh, was the baby of a virgin mother born in the days of Caesar Augustus and that his birth was announced to shepherds by angels... To say, as we read in Matthew 2, that wise men from the east were led from the east to Bethlehem by a star so that they might worship the newborn king. To assert those things as facts of history is to put an end to the notion held nowadays by a surprisingly large number of your fellow countrymen that Christmas can be true for you And not necessarily true for someone else. Baloney. If the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ, if he was born to a mother who never knew a man, if magi from the east came to worship him as an infant led to him by a star, Jesus is true for everybody in the ordinary sense of the word true. If the Christmas history as reported in Matthew and Luke is a factual, reliable account of what actually happened, then it is an unanswerable challenge to any and every worldview, to any and every other philosophy of life, to any and every other religious viewpoint. There are many things, an increasing number of people in our supposedly sophisticated modern West actually believe. They believe such things because they are treated to a mind-numbing avalanche of propaganda and because nobody ever asks them to examine, to think about the things they are being told. They believe... Not only that all crime scene investigators are attractive blondes in their mid or later 20s who carry guns and nab bad guys, they believe not only that everybody is having sex all the time with a variety of partners, and this is fun and does no one any harm, they believe not only that true happiness can be achieved without the very hard work of building character, a work that absolutely requires great measures of self-denial. But they also believe that truth itself is what you make of it, and in particular religious truth. That truth is really just another word for opinion, very personal opinion. And so it is possible that what is true for one person is not true for another. Christian faith may be true for us, but that doesn't make it true for Muslims or for secularists. This is nothing less than the worship of tolerance making fools of an entire people. It never ceases to amaze me how far that idea has traveled in the modern West. We hold it, to be sure, with a massive amount of hypocrisy and inconsistency. We don't expect our air traffic controllers to be post-modernists who believe that all roads lead to Chicago. We don't expect our bank not to know exactly how much money we put in and how much we have spent. We don't even think it irrelevant whether or not Caesar actually fought the Gallic Wars. But somehow our friends and neighbors have actually come to believe that it doesn't make much difference whether Jesus was born, as Luke tells us, He was when Herod was the king of Judea and Caesar Augustus was the emperor and Quirinius was the governor. We Christians certainly know better. We're happy to admit it. If there were no angels outside of Bethlehem that night reporting events to the shepherds, if Mary were not in fact a virgin when she gave birth to her firstborn son, if magi from the east did not in fact follow a sign in the heavens to find the baby in Bethlehem, then you and I have bet on the wrong horse. We would lose all interest in the Christian faith and religion were the gospel narratives not true. True in the good, old, strong sense of the word. If the gospels did not, in fact, provide an accurate account of what actually happened, we would lose our interest in that story immediately, and rightly so. If it isn't true, it ceases to be of any importance. Christianity is not, you see, a message about how people ought to live, a message that could be helpful even if Jesus Christ himself never lived, as has often been claimed. That flies, however, in the face of what Christians actually believe. Christianity is not even the description of a way of salvation, the things we must do in order to be saved different in its own way from what is taught in Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or in the various secular philosophies of the modern world. Christianity, to be sure, is an ethical system. It is metaphysics. It does teach a way of salvation, but not in the first place. Christianity is first and foremost good news. The breathless proclamation of some absolutely stupendous things that happen when so and so was the king, and so and so was the emperor. Some of you may have heard of the parable of the invisible gardener, first proposed by the British philosopher John Wisdom in the 1940s, but then taken up, elaborated, and made famous by Anthony Flew, another British philosopher who lectured in British and American universities and wrote a number of influential books. Indeed, Flew, F-L-E-W, until his death in 2010, was famous as being perhaps the best known thinker writing in defense of atheism in the second half of the 20th century. He was a serious thinker, a man whose philosophical sophistication exceeded by several orders of magnitude, that of Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, these best known of the new crop of writing atheists. The parable of the invisible gardener was a staple of Anthony Flew's argument for atheism. It was developed supposedly to describe the difference between the kind of assertions that are made on the basis of faith and the kind of assertions that are made on the basis of scientific evidence reason and logic it has been published in many different forms but it's always about an invisible gardener it runs this way once upon a time two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle in the clearing were growing many flowers and many weeds one explorer said some gardener must tend this plot the other disagreed and said No, there's no gardener. So they pitched their tent and set a watch. No gardener was ever seen. But perhaps he's an invisible gardener, the one explorer said. So they set up a barbed wire fence. They electrified it. They patrolled it with bloodhounds, for they remembered how H.G. Wells' invisible man could be both smelled and touched, though he could not be seen. But no shrieks ever suggested that some intruder had received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betrayed an invisible climber. No, the bloodhounds never gave a cry. Yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener, invisible, intangible, insensible to electric shocks. A gardener who has no scent and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last, the skeptical explorer despaired. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even no gardener at all? You get the point of the parable. The skeptic is asking, where is the evidence for the existence of God? Because it seems to him that the assertion about God and his existence made by the believer can't be falsified. No lack of evidence is ever enough to disprove the existence of God. Nothing will convince a believer that God is not there, no matter that you can't see him or hear him or detect his presence in any other way. But if you can't detect the presence of God, the skeptic asks, isn't that the same thing as saying that there really isn't any evidence for God at all. Now, the high irony of all of this is that the very man who deployed this argument to such good effect and made it so famous, Antony Flew, eventually gave up his atheism and became near the end of his life a deist, a believer in God. This happens a lot in life. Some of you perhaps have seen the graffito, as I have, common to the stalls of university men's rooms that reads, God is dead, Nietzsche, 1882. Nietzsche is dead, God, 1900. (laughs) The point is that God always gets the last word and often tweaks the noses of those who are sure that somehow or another they have dispensed with him. Antony Flew devoted his life to the demonstration of the non-existence of God. No divine intelligence, no personal God, only to be forced at the end of his life to admit that the world must have a creator. He accepted that the evidence for the existence of God had at last overpowered his skepticism. While he didn't believe in the God of Christianity, he explained that Aristotle had taught him to follow the evidence wherever it led him, and he had come to believe that modern scientific discoveries had made highly implausible the hypothesis that life as we know it evolved by accident, that the complex, information-rich life of the cell could have been the result of nothing but time and chance. Apparently, there is more to the reality of this invisible gardener and the evidence for his existence than flew himself had thought for most of his life. But much more to the point, the parable utterly fails to deflect the spear point of the actual Christian challenge. Christians don't begin or end with an invisible gardener. What they claim is that the gardener came in to his garden, appeared among the people of the world, lived for years as a man among men, Proved himself in a variety of ways to be so much more than a mere man. And when he left the world, promised to return in due time. Hardly an invisible gardener. Hardly an imaginary one. Visible, tangible, audible. In every way, a historical personage whose words and deeds were recorded for posterity, whose friends and followers spent the rest of their lives telling the world what they had seen and heard of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. It is because the Christmas story is real history, history in the sense in which Quiridius was a figure of history, in which Herod and Augustus were figures of history. It's this that makes it so spectacularly important. We have no difficulty, to be sure, in understanding why people don't believe the, Christian, the Christmas narrative to be history in that ordinary sense of the term, they would say it must be a myth because such events as it relates, a virgin birth, angels appearing to shepherds, stars leading magi to distant destinations, simply are things that are impossible for modern people to believe. We understand that, however, if the New Testament did not have in its narrative these remarkable, unusual, supernatural events. No one would doubt its history. So chaste is it, so reliable in every other respect as a chronicle of things that happened. The New Testament is not, after all, like the mythological literature of the ancient world. The narrative of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus isn't remotely like the stories of gods and heroes that you find in the Homeric or the Hindu epics, for example. It's nothing like that. It makes a serious claim to historical truth and offers the sort of evidence that has convinced knowledgeable and even highly skeptical um, critics through the ages. Believing in the historicity of Christmas, atheists would like you to believe, is the evidence of a weak mind. But, of course, some of the most learned and powerful minds that have ever graced the life of mankind have believed these events to have taken place and believe that the evidence for their historicity is much stronger than the arguments that can be advanced against it. The far larger problem people have with treating the Christmas history as real history, as a record of what actually happened, is the implications of doing so. What if Jesus were born of a virgin? What if angels did announce his birth to shepherds outside of Bethlehem? What if a star led magi from the east to worship the newborn king? Well, if those things actually happened, then God really did enter the world, the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it, including you and me. God really did come among us to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ really is the Savior of the world and the only Savior of the world. It really is true that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If the Christmas narrative is real history, there really is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus' birth... As it was reported in Matthew and Luke, if true, then it must be the case that he who has the Son of God has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. If events unfolded as the Gospels report them to have done, then it is true that the Son of Man came into the world to give his life a ransom for many, that he who was rich became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. Here's the real problem. The claims of the New Testament and the Christian faith taught in it are universal and they are absolute. That's the problem. If the Christmas story is real history and account of what happened, then Jesus Christ is left alone standing in the field. All other religions, no matter that they may teach some common truth, are at bottom false. And so all other philosophies of life that do not begin and end with the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is why people so regularly ignore the powerful evidence for the historicity of the gospel narratives. And this is why they sing the the Christmas carols without reckoning with what they're singing. After all, most of the Christmas carols are simply a repetition of the history of the Christmas narrative. If they were to confess it history their lives would have to change root and branch. We understand that. We get that. But we say to them, truth is truth. And if your lives have to change, so be it. But we also say, when you come to understand who Jesus is and what he has done and why, and why he asks for your faith and your loyalty, you will be glad, so glad, To celebrate Christmas, not as a cheery winter holiday, but as the remembrance of the greatest things that have ever happened in the history of the world. Or, for that matter, in your own life. In every way your life will change, as it must, but you will be so happy that it did. Is the Christmas history as unbelievable as many in our elite culture would want us to think? Not if there is a God in heaven who made the heavens and the earth and who made man in his own image. Not if man in his sinful rebellion has alienated himself from God. Not if God is love and hungers for the salvation of his world. Not if a just and holy God could reconcile man to himself only by the impossibly dramatic and world-shaking expedient of the incarnation and then the death of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Not if the Holy Spirit is abroad in the world calling men and women to live lives in communion with the living God. There's much here to believe, of course. We cannot see the Lord Christ at this time. Nor were we ourselves witnesses of His coming into the world long ago, but many others were. And a very careful record was made of the astonishing things that happened in those once-for-all years. And taking all of reality into account, the Christmas history relates, I think, just the sort of thing the living God of perfect holiness and perfect justice would do for us in our salvation. And is it true? And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, Seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Amen.